it's sort of my dream in a way to be able to do something that I'm passionate about, that I believe in, um, but also to do it in the company of others who have those similar visions and dreams for you know, really what a better world can look like. Hi, and welcome to the Lead TV podcast. I'm Lennox Osara, host of the show. Today, I'm joined by Robin Oates. Guess what? She joins me all the way from New York because currently she's working for the United Nations at their headquarters with the Secretary General's office. She currently works as a Sustainable Development Officer. During her time at Tux, she managed to complete her qualification with a BCom Honours in Accounting Sciences that then paved the way for her to work as a chartered accountant for some of the biggest consulting firms in the world, which include Barclays Capital as well as Deloitte. So she's had the privilege of working in the private sector and then also in non-government organizations, as she is doing right now. So let's find out more about how life has been treating her out in New York. Uh, Robin, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you so much, Lennox. I was looking at your journey and just mapping out how, obviously, doing the research and stuff like that, and I thought, you know, one thing that you have in common with many of my friends is that you, you know, managed to get your child accountancy at some point. And when I speak to them, a lot of the times they talk about it being quite a difficult journey. So I just wonder if you found it that way. Yeah, I think, you know, expectations are an important thing, right? And so I think when we, um, when I was looking at what it is that I was going to study and considering going the CA route, it was always in the back of my mind and I think often reflected on that, yeah, this is a challenging route. You know, it's a seven-year commitment that you're making. With that expectation in mind, I think that sort of helped the framing, knowing what we were getting ourselves in for. Yeah. Now, seven years is a long time, seven years of dedication. And sometimes it hinges on the board exam. So uh, did you find that to be stressful? Did you get it on one shot or you had to try a few times? I was fortunate to get it on one shot. And I think, you know, preparation was obviously so important. But also I did a lot of study groups with friends and I felt like that helped in the journey as well. I wasn't doing it alone and it wasn't a sort of a solo act, but studying with a couple of really good friends that I was doing articles with really helped me in that process as well. Because I find a lot of the times when you're working in, a, in quite a complex qualification, uh, perhaps if somebody's pursuing a PhD or whatever, or maybe being a medical doctor, it can be a little isolating. So the fact that you found a way to find collaboration and, and teamwork was pretty cool. Yeah, I think that's something I feel like reflecting even for preparing for this interview is just reflecting on that, like the importance of community, the importance of not going at it alone. Um, I think I was very fortunate to have had a very supportive family, um, but also a, a supportive group of friends who also were maybe studying different things than I was, but were really supportive in, in what I was trying to pursue and do. Yeah. And, and tell me a bit about your family. You said that they were quite supportive. Like what did their support look like at the time? <laughs> you know, I, one of the things that has become a bit of a catchphrase in our family and with my parents is, if it doesn't work out, you can always come home. Okay, <laughs> that's good, that's good. You know, that's one thing I feel like gave me a lot of freedom. You know, I left South Africa when I was 24. Well, actually, I left South Africa at 23 to go to Luxembourg and then from there uh, came to New York. And I think having that sort of freedom to go and explore, but also the safe place that if it didn't work out, if things didn't work out in New York, if I couldn't find a job, if I, you know, if I couldn't make it work, that I could always come home. And South Africa is home for me still. Um, and I think having, you know, having parents that, that continually reiterated that message was incredibly helpful. I think what's exciting as well about your journey is that you then got your CA 
uh, qualification and then you took that, uh, it helped you to work in corporate for a bit. Um, you worked in corporate for several years and then obviously you left corporate. But taking you back to the corporate days, what are some of the things you're learning there? Because obviously it is quite a unique journey there. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think such a valuable experience. Um, so obviously during, during my articles, I was working in the financial services industry um, at Deloitte. And I think being exposed to so many different types of industries within financial services. So you've got insurance, you've got reinsurance, you've got microfinance, you've got the big institutional banks, you've got the pension funds. So I think having that breadth of experience uh, was so incredibly informative, but also knowing and understanding when you go into a new client, you don't necessarily understand how that client works, what their systems and their processes are. So you also learn, I think, the skill of asking really good questions or learning how to ask good questions, um, learning how to face challenging situations, um, you know, challenging personalities even, and being able to be quite adaptive and flexible within those contexts and those environments but keeping the main objective in mind, you know, and the main objective coming in as consultants is whatever we set up with the client to do. Um, but I think that's very, very helpful experience grounding very early on in my career. And then another thing I think that the CA qualification brings and, and my time at UP brought was um, this academic rigor yeah. and this ability to follow uh, follow arguments through to their logical conclusion. And I think that's something I definitely take out of my CA days. It's a very analytical framing to a lot of issues, which I think has put me in good stead now. It's quite a difficult journey. But take me through what you spoke about now. In academia, we always speak about people finding their scholarly voice. I almost want to say, how did you sort of like find your corporate voice? You know, because you obviously have to grow into it. Right. I think that's a great question. And I very much think it's also still evolving and probably will continue to evolve uh, for the rest of my career trajectory. I think it's a combination of things. You know, I think it's it's a combination of, of our, our background, our experience, how we grew up, our academic experience, as well as obviously the, the environment then that we find ourselves in. I think for me, it was the work that I do now, obviously, within the UN was very much influenced by growing up in South Africa, by seeing you know, this face of inequality that we saw every single day and really being struck by the injustice of that and knowing and feeling a deep sense of we've got to do more. And so when I was studying finance and thinking through what did I want to do as a career, it was a question of we need to do more with finance to, to build more equitable societies. And so I think for me, that was part of finding my voice. And then it was a bit of a question of what are my interests? Being in New York where I am now, meeting so many different people from you know, documentary film producers to constitutional rights lawyers. And I think all of those interactions also shaped my views on certain things, but also where I found a lot of interest. And so one of the areas of interest that I have is on sovereign debts and human rights and how do those interplay with each other. And so how do you, you know, what's the role of capital markets in um, developing countries and, and those kind of contexts? And so I think finding the voice is something that's very um, much always evolving. And, and I think that's a good thing as well. Yeah, there are multiple legs you mentioned earlier in finance, you know, you could pick the different options there are there. But obviously, as you pick your preferred channel of focus, you realize how enormous that is as well, and how much, uh, how deep it goes. And I think with your passion, realizing that you're going to use finance to be a vehicle to which you can express yourself as you're finding your voice. I mean, did you not ever feel overwhelmed? Because I think I would definitely feel very overwhelmed and a little scared. I'm not going to lie. Oh, all the time. 
Uh, I think, you know, and, and, and it's something that's a challenge on a daily basis is getting asked to work on projects or to work on issues that I feel that I do have a very limited knowledge of and experience of. But I think then it's a question of going back to, okay, so what do I know? What do I know about topic X, Y, and Z? But also who do I know that knows and that is an expert in these particular areas and whose knowledge and expertise I can leverage? And then I think realizing that no none None of us, no one of us has all the answers or is expected even to have all the answers. And so I think giving, you know, giving myself grace, giving others grace as we um, learn. And many of these issues are also developing issues. And so there's no textbook that you go to for all the right answers. But it's it's a question of working together, finding creative solutions. And also, I think just also giving yourself the, the freedom to show up as you are you know, with, again, the experiences that you've had, the knowledge that you've acquired, um, be ready to listen and be ready to learn. Yeah, I take it back to 2010, Robin. I, I know you were excited about two things back then. The FIFA World Cup was taking place in South Africa back then, which was very exciting. Everybody excited about that. But also you were switching roles. So you were actually starting your role at the United Nations, moving from the private sector uh, to the United Nations. So what inspired that? move at that time? So that move came about a year after being um, in New York. And it was really a deep-seated desire that I think I'd had from a few years back to, again, see how we could use finance, how we could build financial systems that were more equitable. 2010 was obviously two years after the start of the financial crisis. I think coming to New York, having conversations with everyday people listening to how they had lost their pensions, how they had lost their savings for the future through that financial crisis really had a very big impact on me. Um, and I think is a large part of what directed me towards wanting to move into a multilateral, multinational institution that worked on issues of, of governance, of accountability, of transparency, and seeing how we could start to engage with financial systems, again, in a way that made them more equitable for a broader uh, swath of society. Take me through, obviously, you know, you, you know, grew up in South Africa, you mentioned that you saw some of the inequalities, and now you're currently in New York, uh, where you've had also the opportunity to travel uh, through your work in different countries and also work and stay in different countries. Um, is this really the dream, the American dream that many people talk about that you're experiencing? so sure about that um, but I think it's definitely my dream so I think the you know one of the, the things that I love so much about working in the UN um, is is a deep belief in the mission um, of what the UN stands for and what it is trying to achieve in terms of you know, universal human rights and things like that but also the opportunity to work with people from so many backgrounds and cultures and with so many different life experiences and that's incredibly enriching for me on a personal level. Um, but then yes, also having that opportunity to travel. I lived in, in Colombia and in Mexico for a short amount of time in Geneva as well. And so that all of those experiences, I think being able to learn learn from others, that is ultimately for me, the, the, the richness um, of that experience. And so it's sort of my dream in a way to be able to do something that I'm passionate about, that I believe in, um, but also to do it in the company of others who have those similar uh, visions and dreams for you know, really what a better world could look like. Are all the things that you've been able to learn from the people that you've met in the different countries that you were at and the connections you've been able to, to make, 
How have those made your view on transformation, uh, on unity, on equity? How have they shaped your views now? Because, you know, it's one thing to hear something in the news, but then it's one thing to experience it. Mm. Oh, absolutely. And I think with a great deal of humility, I think it's the lived experiences of people that we need to make sure that we consider. You know, it's one thing, again, to sit in New York and to, to discuss policy recommendations, but it's another thing when everyday people are living living out the implications uh, of policies, you know, that governments put in place. There's obviously a huge, a huge role for our cultural backgrounds, norms and experiences in that. So even if we take something as, maybe as controversial as the word feminism, what does that mean in different cultural contexts? What does that mean for a woman living in the West versus a woman um, living somewhere in, 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 in another country, in another part of the world where cultural norms are different? And so I think it's it's definitely broadened my understanding, but made me also more open, I think, to to moving away from the perhaps the, the view that I had um, growing up or based on experience and exposure. So I think it's just really broadened that out. We're recording in South Africa right now, um, coming through from South Africa, you are to New York. And, uh, you know, sometimes in South Africa, a lot of people wake up to a lot of the realities around them. And it's so easy to, I guess, lose a bit of hope because you look at the political tensions and you look at the inequality and stuff like that. So, I mean, what would you say to somebody who's perhaps at their wit's end, like, Who will things ever be better? Yeah, well, I think maybe I think they would be right. You know, that things things can be better and, and should be better. Um, I remember being very influenced by uh, a line from one of Barack Obama's speeches that he gave on the 50th anniversary of the commemoration of Bloody Sunday in Selma. And he said, Selma teaches us to that action requires that we shed our cynicism. For when it comes to the pursuit of justice, we can afford neither complacency nor despair. And I think that really struck me when it is easy to come, to become despairing, um, to lose hope and to lose heart, that we cannot afford to become cynical, but that we do need to take action. And I say that, I say that too, again, with a lot of humility, because I do think when someone is in a situation that is incredibly difficult and you've got these systemically, systemic injustice issues that need to be addressed, it's very difficult, I think, on an individual level to continue to move forward. But I also know, you know, that South Africans are some of the most resilient people that I've ever, ever met. And the ability to make connections, to network, um, to continue to move forward with a lot of hope is something that I that makes me very proud to be South African um, and to have grown up in that context. Yeah, that's, that's certainly encouraging. And I, I must take it back now to your current work, which I think is very exciting. I was not really stalking you, but obviously doing a bit of research and I came across your LinkedIn and I realized, you know, got to see all the work that you've been able to do. And I saw in your wallpaper, you actually have the 17 Sustainable Development Goals, which is a part of the Agenda 2030 for the United Nations to ensure that uh, people and the planet uh, thrive in the right direction. So, uh, you know, I, I actually realized that I was involved in a project at the University of Pretoria that was focusing on uh, Sustainable Development Goal number two, which is Zero Hunger. So I was keen to find out from your side, I don't know if you've got a favorite or all 17 of them are your favorites. <laughs> well, I would say all 17 of them are interlinked, right? Oh, yeah. They not have one or the other. So, um, yeah, but I did work for a number of years at UN Women, 
and our objective there is obviously gender equality and placing gender equality um, at the center of the achievement of sustainable development goals. So I think that's definitely a, a passion of mine growing up again in South Africa, seeing the inequality between men and women. Also, the high rates of, of violence against women is something that really um, influenced me quite significantly. And I think achieving gender equality is is will be and is fundamental to us achieving uh, the sustainable development goals. And that looks like a lot of different things. And so for us at UN Women, it was focusing on economic empowerment of women. It was focusing on the political participation of women, obviously health, health related issues um, uh, and engagement in civil society, et cetera. So I think there's a lot of components to what is what does gender equality look like? And those are some of the things that we worked on at UN Women. Now, that's uh, incredible. And uh, you also work with the United Nations Development Program as well. Um, they, they do seem to be quite interlinked to a degree, whilst they might have different focal points. Absolutely. I think the UN Development Program is, is a large agency that has a number of different focuses. They work across the sustainable development goals, but they work in country. And um, in the country, both uh, on the ground with governments, building capacity with governments on these different areas and issues. And then you've got specialized agencies. So UN Women is a specialized agency that deals and, and focuses in on uh, the normative aspects around gender equality, you know, setting, helping facilitate setting rules, uh, laws, norms, etc. around these key issues. So they both have their, their part and their role to play. Yeah, true. I'm going to make an example out of your something that you, you might uh, relate with a lot easier around interest rates, because, you know, when your interest rates are the in the Central Reserve Bank, if they're trying to uh, curb inflation, they hike the interest rates. But the effects of you know their decisions can be felt maybe 18 months down the line or 19 months down the line. And sometimes I feel like progress is very much like that. Like you know you might do something that might only take effect maybe five six years down the road. I mean, what have you been learning about things like progress in general? Because it zigs and it zags, and it takes long. Yeah. No, absolutely, it does, and I think. That's one of the things I remember from my early days, you know, starting starting at the UN, having this impulsiveness that maybe comes with youth a little bit of like, no, we need change. We need it now. We need to move forward um, and learning the importance of patience in the pro in the process, learning that incremental changes over time is ultimately what matters and that it takes it does take a long time and it takes, I think, a great deal of stakeholder engagement across different ecosystems for us to move the needle on certain things. And so I think that's something that I have learned as well, the importance of patience, but the importance of sticking to what is the objective here? What is the clear goal that we're working towards and making sure that we're making consistent progress in that direction, even if that progress is incremental? And do you also have to stay patient? Because I guess you talk about multiple stakeholder engagement, government and some from different uh, organizations who sometimes might not agree on the same things, might not view the world the same way. So you sort of like want to get on the same page, but you're starting off on different platforms. One of the things I've learned from, from, from those experiences is the find what you can agree on. Find what it is that you can agree on. Even if you can't agree on 10 things, if you can agree on one, that's where you start. You start with what you can agree on, find some common uh, common ground on, on those issues, and then you work forward from there, knowing that most things, as as in life, are, are, are all in negotiation. 
that it does take time, that you've also got to put the right incentives on the table and understand too that there are trade-offs that need to that need to happen. I've also learned that providing sort of a menu of options, if we want, uh, you know, if we want certain decisions to be made, providing a menu of three or four options that might at least hit some of the points uh, that whether it's uh, you know, government officials or private sector is trying to hit, finding out what those what those key issues are and seeing a way to to come up with sort of creative solutions of weaving those together. Yeah, true. And and, and when we started this conversation. Uh, before we started recording, you were talking about how you watched some of the other episodes uh, of the LDP podcast, and now you get to add your voice to to the to the podcast as well, which which is really exciting. And this season, as you know, we're focusing a lot on growth and progress. So, how has UP uh, helped you to grow and to make progress in your life? I think I think I alluded to it a little bit earlier on, but that that academic rigor that comes with with studying at UP. Also, just the environment. I remember it always being a very uh, conducive environment to learning, um, to asking questions that were maybe maybe not the popular questions to be asked at the time, but having that space and that freedom to be able to do that. And I think that's really what academic institutions are there for, to be able to challenge a little bit of the status quo, to be able to ask perhaps unpopular questions. So I'd say it's that academic rigor plus that freedom um, to, to ask those questions, to learn and, and to sort of work through challenging uh, challenging issues. And hopefully that rigor will continue to pave a way for you in the future and uh, perhaps in your future plans as well. I, Robin, my last, last question to you is around just your future plans. Um, five years from now, where would you like to see yourself? <laughs> well, it's continually evolving, um, so let's see. But I think it's been a pleasure and a journey for me to date, um, working on the financing and development space, looking at how we can reform and transform financial architecture, financial systems to be more equitable for broader broader sections of society. So I think that's something that I will continue to focus on. And maybe that means focuses, focusing in specifically on sort of key debt issues, or maybe more broadly uh, engaging with the private sector around their commitments towards sustainability, around their commitments uh, towards climate change, et cetera. Yeah, incredible. Well, Robin, thanks for all the work that you're doing out there. Uh, I think you're a pioneer for change, uh, a force for positive change you are. So thank you for uh, inspiring me and inspiring the listeners today. And uh, we wish you the absolute best in the future. Thank you so much. Well, there you have it. That does bring us to the end of our conversation with Robin Oates. Truly exciting to see all the work that she's doing, that uh, progress is sometimes a tedious thing, can take a bit of time, but hang in there if it does feel like a little impossible. But uh, we want to hear from you, your thoughts, your comments, your suggestions about the podcast. Perhaps you can suggest who you want to see as our next guest on the show. Simply visit up.ac.za forward slash leadup. You'll be able to catch up with other episodes over there. But also we're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all platforms, really. Uh, if you want to see the visual of this interview, you can simply find it on YouTube at the University of Pretoria's YouTube channel. Remember that every episode comes out right at the end of the month. So that first Monday of the new month, you'll catch the new episode. And our production team is Samantha Castle. Alna Schutz is our head of content as well. And most importantly, the Alumni Relations Office is bringing this podcast to you. I want to thank the videographer and the audio team who are bringing the audio quality that you're experiencing, as well as the wonderful uh, visuals that you're seeing on your screen, that being Morocco Communications. But to meet again, it's nothing but love and light on the side. Catch you on the next episode. Mm-hmm.